the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Welcome to Sunday, June 25th, 2017, our Chalcedon Q&A session for the week. And this is Martin Sorbetti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. This is our third session, and we've had some interesting discussions uh, in the first two. Everything from relatively benign topics to some hot potatoes. So we're anxious to see what uh, might come up uh, this week in terms of uh, Q&A. So, at the moment I am uh, still awaiting uh, the first question. There was some talk about possibly getting me questions in advance. I actually hadn't seen any pop up in my email box. But presumably uh, that might still uh, happen next session. Uh, Mark had a very interesting discussion. If you were caught, caught his sermon that uh, just completed, and uh, it, it's worthwhile, if you haven't seen it, to uh, enjoy what he had to say, expositing the Word of God for us. So here's a question. This week, in a conversation about the passage of the Jesus, the Pharisees, and the woman caught in adultery, one person said, well, that account is not in the earliest manuscripts, was added much later. Okay, that's as far as I can see. So what we have here is actually, uh, and the reason that people make this comment is that in certain variants, this uh, pericope, as it's called, uh, the story of the adulteress is, uh, might appear in a different location in a different gospel even. Uh, so there's a dispute as to whether it was interpolated, inserted into that position. Um, and consequently, now you have a question about what is canonical, what is scriptural, what is not. You have a textual criticism question in front of us. I would strongly recommend anyone read uh, and acquire the Journal of Christian Reconstruction uh, Symposium on the uh, Biblical Text and Literature. Uh, there's some excellent articles in there that touch on this. Uh, Dr. Rashtuni himself was uh, strongly of the opinion that the received text is the uh, actual text. Uh, if you want to call it the ecclesiastical text, uh, there's some minor variations, but the basic thrust of it is, is that the uh, promise of Isaiah 59.21 has been kept by God. He didn't break the promise, which is to say that this word that I give you shall remain in the mouth of your children, children's children, forever. And so if that promise is true, then the preservation of his word is important. Uh, there are other uh, concerns about that pericope. Uh, if you remove it, it's not necessarily that you have logic, uh, a logical flow from one part to the other. Uh, and we even see a theonomist like Dr. Bonson saying that uh, because this passage is not found in these older manuscripts, uh, it casts grave doubt, his words, on the authenticity of this particular passage. Uh, we don't happen to follow Dr. Bonson's uh, take on it. Now, he did something very interesting. He said, but even if it is uh, biblical, which is an odd way to put it, if it in fact is biblical, that you would cast doubt on the Word of God, uh, it doesn't support the position of the uh, folks that use this as to say that Jesus has actually released or relaxed the uh, penalty for adultery. Uh, 
in point of fact, Jesus was enforcing the uh, law of God, the details, because the uh, first uh, people to throw the stones had to be witnesses with clean hands. The clean hands doctrine is an important aspect of Scripture. And uh, you cannot have a compromised witness involved in a judicial case, in a judicial proceeding. Consequently, far from casting the law, God, the law of God aside, Jesus is indicting the Pharisees and scribes who dragged the woman in front of her, saying, you're the lawless ones. You didn't even obey the law in respect to this particular case. And as we've said before, uh, if procedural justice is not present, then you cannot have any kind of justice, let alone substantive justice. She may well have been guilty of the adultery. That was not a dispute. But they could not proceed with any um, legal execution because the laws of um, justice had not been, the Mosaic law had not been applied. So the so-called champions of the law who says, you know, according to our law, this woman should die. What do you say? And Jesus says, according to your law, she can't die because you screwed up your case, in essence. Uh, and you did it out of malice for her and to me, in effect. So you have two questions here, which is the text-critical one, and then there's the question of the um, placement of this text in the area of, or I guess I would call it, uh, theonomic disputations. In other words, the dialogue or the debate over is the law of God, is it still valid? Uh, in Dr. Rashtuni's view, it is in fact still very, very valid, and uh, consequently, Jesus is enforcing it in a way that the Pharisees did not. They were the hypocrites, Jesus was the one purifying the law and saying this is what it actually states. There's some dispute as to what he was writing in the ground with his finger, and there we enter the realm of speculation, and consequently I'm not comfortable going into the speculation area, but others have, uh, going where angels fear to tread, as the old phrase goes. Uh, I'm convinced that the uh, received text is correct, that the critical hypothesis which said we have a whole bunch of rationalistic approaches to the text, and we can therefore say the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus uh, the manuscripts can be uh, regarded as authentic and everything else tossed out uh, because it conflicts with it uh, is a huge problem in itself. Uh, so uh, that actually would take hours to discuss. I certainly have a ton of volumes on my shelf going back 35 years and just my collecting it on this topic. Uh, and I have not seen anything convincing to show that the text receptus is uh, 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 corrupted or, or fouled up. Now, there's certainly some strong scholars out there who make it their business to attack it, a uh, full frontal attack. And uh, and I think lots of folks in this area have a scorched earth approach and uh, declare victory prematurely, often because they've picked a protagonist who wasn't up to snuff, who wasn't ready to defend the, say, the TR position, the text re received text position. Because this, uh, now we're saying that we need to have experts tell us what the right word of God is, well, the extent of it, and what this particular word is, and which one was in the autograph, versus the uh, which is the original that was written by a, a disciple, an apostle, someone in this order, a prophet. And uh, that's a problem, because once you say, Yea, hath God said, uh, then everything is open, and there could be another discovery of an earlier manuscript. In Dr. Rushton's view, these two old manuscripts survived this long because they were considered corrupt and were essentially set aside and preserved primarily for the vellums to be reused because vellum is a very expensive material to write on. And they actually reflected, a, a as to use Bergen's phrase, a depraved um, text type. Uh, Bergen was under a heavy attack all the way from Warfield. Warfield had a criticism of Bergen. And... Uh, 
But even then, Warfield had to concede that Bergen, though he didn't accept Bergen's defense of the, uh, say, the King James Bible, not per se King James, but the Greek uh, structure underlaid it, he also said, in individual cases, Bergen is correct. In other words, we have to give Bergen points on, say, the honeycomb in this passage and this word over here. Uh, so, But on whole, he doesn't like the model because they have different approaches to the place of the relationship of church to the text that the church is erected on. Okay, could you address the idea of experts in general? How does one become an expert? Well, there's the self-proclaimed expert. That is, um, that's an interesting way to go because in the modern world, with Facebook and all sorts of abilities to mount a website and to generate crowdfunding, uh, you can uh, gin up, as they say, uh, the pretense of expertise. And one way you can preserve that is to filter out negative attacks and uh, block folks that are catching you in your errors. And that's a common gambit today because uh, you can accumulate for yourselves lots of followers simply by uh, pretensed expertise. Then the other uh, mechanisms involve credentials. Now, credentialism, I think, is the bane of Christianity because most of the credentials are issued by agencies that uh, may not necessarily be friendly to the Christian faith. Some folks say, well, unless you have a PhD in a secular, from a secular university, in other words, a university that denies Christ or has omitted Christ by design, uh, your knowledge of topic A, B, or C is uh, corrupt uh, or should not be listened to. Where, where, where is your credential? And, of course, this was the demand of Jesus, too. Where's your credential? No, I'm not saying we're comparing ourselves or anyone to Jesus. But the demand for the credential is an interesting thing because it means that we seek our authority from men. Uh, and men, therefore, uh, create these institutions, which is funny because universities are really a Christian invention in the Middle Ages. We're the ones who had a notion of a, what a universe, a, a coherent creation was, and that all the fields in it could be studied in one place. Uh, in a unified, systematic way. The universities now have raised up these new standards and said we are the um, gatekeepers for what an expert's going to be. Uh, and this can sometimes can go back around on uh, those who propose this. In other words, it's a trap of sorts. Uh, ultimately, the question of authority goes back to God's authority and uh, his creatorship. So. The best we can do, I think, if you have conflicting experts, is to weigh them the best you can and uh, compare them to a known standard, a, a, and that's what the Bible provides, is a good standard. If the Bible doesn't happen to speak to that area, it may speak to it circumstantially or peripherally at best, but it still should be brought into play if there's any bearing at all on the topic, because there, there is light. There's always light when the scripture is applied properly. If the scripture is omitted, there's a very good chance that there's going to be some level of darkness because the interpretation of data is where the problem comes in. If you're a presuppositionalist in your approach to scripture and its application, you realize that the interpretations arise not from the evidence so much, but from the presuppositions that shape the handling of the evidence to a preconceived conclusion. Because you cannot have a conclusion that isn't contained in your premises. And a presupposition is a pre-contemplative commitment. In other words, before the process of thinking has begun, you already have a commitment to a certain conclusion. And as you accumulate your evidence, you'll actually start to sort and collate it and shape it and frame it to get you to the desired uh, goal. And we call this fudging data, and it's been done in the sciences left and right, and it's done in the philosophies and in the humanities, uh, and even in music for that matter.
So that's the problem with, with, with experts. And the experts in the law in Jesus' time, they were problematic. They were not good guides to the people. So for all their alleged knowledge, it didn't get them anywhere. Charles Hodge, in his Systematic Theology, made an interesting comment about the interpretation of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He says, uh, So far as it appears, out of the hundreds of thousands of people who had the Hebrew Scriptures in front of them, not a single person interpreted them aright, properly. In other words, for all this advantage of biblical knowledge, they all got it wrong, the experts included. So where's the safe haven? Where's true expertise? That's the question. Uh, I cannot give you a, a solid answer because, of course, uh, that's in, everyone's going to have a different standard by which they'll determine which expert is correct. You know, my experts tell me this. Well, my experts say that. And what do we have? We have an impasse. And then God will have to decide that impasse. And sometimes, uh, as Van Til had pointed out, it will come down to um, a battle... Uh, involving force. It'll be resolved by God's, uh, by force. And I'm talking about God literally in getting involved in the picture in a way that we may not expect because in his providential governance over us uh, sometimes we end up pushing things too far. Another question. Where do you think the primary area of dominion is today? Well, right now I think the primary area of dominion is in the homeschooling movement insofar as it represents the first major breakaway from obeisance worship of the state. At this point, homeschoolers have said we no longer acknowledge the state as uh, the authority, the expert in education. Uh, it has pretended to this, and the results have been catastrophic. I'm kind of weaving back the previous question. Um, in light of this, uh, talking about experts and stuff like that in schooling, uh, Samuel Blumenfeld made an interesting comment. I've quoted it several times, but he mentioned that uh, professors of um, uh, education, I believe it was, that he, he mentioned it, a specific kind of educational PhDs, he says, are the most parasitic members of society. A comment not calculated to make any friends in that community, which is perhaps why he was noticed, or, uh, noticed as the NEA's enemy, public enemy number one, because he went about and uh, attacked uh, the public school system on the evidence, and they didn't like it, and to this day they still don't like it. So there's still a continual way and cry against homeschooling because it represents a reintroduction of Christian principles into the next generation that cannot be so easily shaken by the humanistic indoctrination that is at the core of the uh, public education system, uh, which has slowly um, eroded away all Christian content that might have been there as a pretext for accepting it back in the uh, 1840s when it was launched. <laughs> and Gary Morris asks me, uh, Ford has one too, let me see if it Ford. What about judgment based on the expert's fruit? Uh, that's a good question, Ford, because Jesus says, by their fruit ye shall know them. And this is kind of what Samuel Blumenfeld was doing with the educational experts. He's saying, you know, based on their output uh, and the results, you know, a, a functional illiteracy explosion in this country, uh, their expertise has shown them to be fools and uh, should not be listened to, and yet they still get all the money. They, because they promote a status solution, they're on the right side of the divide, which gives them power and money, at least temporally speaking, in terms of the world at large. Uh, what is RJ's best book, in your opinion, outside of the Institutes? That's a tough call, one of the most pivotal ones 
obviously is the foundations of social order because it touches on things that no one had ever actually uh, investigated properly uh, in that way. And it's a short read, but it's a very, very focused read. Uh, worthwhile if you're looking for an introduction to something powerful outside of institutes. Another one uh, that I'm very privy to uh, um, and, and uh, happen to like is Sovereignty uh, from 2008, again posthumously published. And that book is going to uh, be the subject of the Chalcedon Book of the Month program, actually a week from tomorrow, July 3rd, and I'll be leading that discussion on the book Sovereignty. I happen to have uh, been the person who wrote the foreword to it, so uh, I could cheat and just review my foreword, but that's not how I'm going to handle it, because uh, there are folks who are actually reading the book through who want to discuss it in the course of that discussion. But that would be my two choices for the best book. Um, the Sleeper volume, which is the one that no one seems to read or buy, and yet is a fantastic volume, is Salvation and Godly Rule. It runs against most Rashtuni volumes in that the chapters are relatively long because he extends his discussion of these aspects because he felt they were important. So those would be my, my three. Uh, the easy to read, a shorter to read, at least, uh, Foundations of Social Order, uh, Sovereignty, and for those who want to dig deep, uh, Salvation and Godly Rule. And I see someone has placed uh, a link to uh, those books up there, especially the uh, Foundations of Social Order. That is the book for those who want to uh, see how Wikipedia editors uh, distort and pollute uh, expertise, <laughs> where they quote on the page about Dr. Rashtuni uh, from page 159, and they slice out a little piece of it and say, see, Dr. Rashtuni has used the N-word. He's a racist bigot. There's proof of it. Now, I've gone over many times uh, and put the entire quote, which shows that he was quoting someone else. He was quoting a liturgy from Eric Fromm's circle and criticizing its racism. But every time I corrected it, they would shrink it back down to the part that would uh, deliberately uh, show Dr. Rashtuni in a false, hostile light. So this misquotation of Dr. Rashtuni is uh, occasioned by his use of this term in uh, the book, Foundations of Social Order. So if you get that book and read it for yourself and see what's going on in Wikipedia, you can verify that the experts are dead set on not passing the truth to you about what Dr. Rashtuni did, but to discredit him any way they can, including falsifying the quotation. Okay, off that particular um, um, podium there, I don't want to go any farther than that, other than to say that you cannot trust folks that uh, pretend to be trustworthy. When they say, trust us, uh, you don't have to. Uh, you can double-check for yourself. And when it comes to Wikipedia on many of these controversial topics, you will not get the truth, and it's very easy to verify it. Okay, uh, good question here from Mr. Jones. Uh, for those new to theonomy and Christian Reconstruction, what are some common mistakes or misconceptions that would be helpful to look out for or avoid? I think one of the big misconceptions is that we can uh, take control of the existing political structure and solve all the problems. The problem is the existing political structure in its massive size. You know, it's not as if you can take control of it and say, now I'm going to reduce it to the size that the Bible requires. Most people don't. Once they get in there, they break their promises and see all the uh, benefits to them personally of, of that power because uh, it's a corrupting influence. It's simply because it's outside of the bounds of scriptural um, parameters for government, 
and exceeds the government's charter under the Bible. It therefore is a massive state that sucks away all the energy and capital and resources of the people. And even when Christians get involved in that, uh, they might make the colossal mistake and think this we can have a top-down solution. In point of fact, the kingdom of God does not grow from the top down, it grows from the bottom up, which means that we, like we discussed last week, you must not despise the day of small things. That when you start to build straight and do something as simple as homeschool your own kids, you've already pushed the kingdom of God far more forward than jumping up and becoming vice, vice president of the United States, say. Uh, you will have achieved more in, uh, where God actually is paying attention to your work with the small thing that is faithful to him, as opposed to being part of a structure that's doomed because it's built on sand in the first place. It would take a tremendous um, willpower of, 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 of someone to actually get up into the higher echelons of our government that should not exist, and uh, uh, at least at the size that it is, and the functions that it has accrued uh, to itself, and to literally grapple with it and, and produce a biblical result at the tail end of that process. Yeah, I think because it's founded incorrectly on the premise that man is God, that humanism should reign, and in fact is the dominant uh, religion of our era at the moment, uh, it is not such a simple matter to go in there and fix it. So that's one of the big issues, I think, is looking for solutions in the wrong places. In other words, if only we elected a bunch of Christian Reconstructionists, we'd be in good shape. I think that, uh, and one reason that we can prove that that is a bad idea, is the entire history of Josiah, who is regarded in Scripture, on the authority of God himself, as the greatest king that Israel ever had, greater than any of them, before or after. And he had a tender heart toward God, and he started to put all the great, wonderful uh, influences in. Um, he wanted to reform his nation, honestly. But he lacked a couple of things. But he was the greatest he ever had. So he had a tremendous reformation under him, a new uh, um, uh, celebrations uh, and a rule of idols and things like that. It looked really good. But what happened? One, he didn't obey the entirety of law, the law of God. He was partial to the law, as we say, and he maintained the cavalry and he intercepted uh, Nico, uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, on the way to Carchemish when he ought not to have. He was operating outside the laws of God in so doing, in my, starting that military campaign. He was told by the Pharaoh, he says, you know, God's sending me to lay siege over here to the region, so what do you have to do with you? And it was beyond Josiah's capacity to believe that God was using the Egyptian to smite some other nation. He didn't accept it, so he went out and he got killed as a result. And the entire book of Lamentations, all five chapters of it, is a lamentation on the death of Josiah, who decided that preemptive war was the way to go. So his commitment to preemptive war destroyed the nation. Now, winding it back to what happened here with Josiah, he had this tremendous reformation, and how long did it last? It didn't last. Within two generations, Zedekiah had his eyes gouged out and they were uh, tracking over to Babylon. Why? Because the Reformation never reached the people. He was a popular king, but the Reformation was only skin deep because it didn't proceed from the bottom up. It was from the top down. And so we had, you know, in other words, a good demagogue, if you want to call it Josiah that. Everyone said, this is a great guy. We love him. He's like the Reagan of the time, uh, which is probably an insult to Josiah to say that um, because... But again, they had some things to comment, like preemptive war. Let's see. Uh, Greg Pumakis writes: the kind of the ki kind of this world, or the king of kind of this world, will lay down their crowns, not by force. Yeah, the kings of this world will lay down their crowns, but not by force. Correct. 
uh, they will cast their crowns um, before Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 is indicative of exactly this kind of uh, situation where they will kiss the sun and uh, they will be instructed out of the law of God. The law of God, as I say, has a brilliant and wonderful future because uh, God is just and Jesus is just and lowly and riding on, he rides in on the colt, a full of an ass, an animal of peace into Jerusalem, having salvation. And that's, uh, you're welcome. Uh, glad to be able to help on that question. Uh, I suppose there are other questions about uh, theonomy and Christian Reconstruction. One is, uh, I can add a little bit more to that, um, is an aggressive, graceless approach to it. What we miss sometimes is that even Psalm 119, which is a tremendous meditation on the law of God, makes an interesting points is uh, that you know God has graciously given us the law. Even the act of giving us this guidance is gracious on God's part. So we must realize that uh, there are weightier measures of the law, and the law of God involves uh, aspects according uh, that sometimes are more than just the cut and dry stuff. Uh, we have sometimes have choices that we need to make, and they need to be made in the spirit that's that's Christ-like. So um, that also means that when we are promoting the law of God, the first thing out of the gate should not be an aggressive, ugly approach. Uh, it should be, as they say, winsome, but not at the cost of the truth. In other words, too many people are willing to candy coat the law of God, and I don't think that's, that's acceptable. I think that misrepresents God. At the same time, Isaiah 42 has this amazing little passage in there about the Messiah. You know, He says... Uh, of the Messiah, that he shall not uh, crush the bruised flax uh, or um, bruised reed or uh, quench the smoking flax. In other words, those that are injured or broken, he doesn't suddenly come down like a storm on top of them and destroy them or, or, or pronounce down from heaven denunciations. Rather, he heal has a healing touch and a gentle touch and reaches them where they're at. And so, too, uh, if we are walking according to the law of God, which in my view means we're walking uh, according to Jesus' example, we'll do the same thing. There's a time when you uh, get on your high horse and have to prognosticate and, and say things straight. And there are other times when you want to reach out across the aisle and, and with, with a tender word, a soft word, and this is also in keeping with what the Messiah does. Because that very same passage about Jesus being... You know, gentle to the bruised reed and the smoking flax where the light's almost about to go out on the end of the ember. Instead of quenching it, he brings it back to life. He blows gently on it to bring it back to spiritual life. The passage closes saying, and the islands are waiting for his law. So the idea that this is inconsistent with God's law is wrong. The very same passage that characterizes Christ's approach also magnifies the love of God that he's going to send it forth into the isles across the entire globe. And it proceeds as Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. Isaiah 2, verses 3 and 4 from Jerusalem out into all the world. It just expands outward. And our mission is to start with our own children, and our, well, ourselves first, because of course can't be a hypocrite. So reconstruction always must begin with ourselves. I guess that's another good point that I want to say. A mistake is I want to reconstruct you and you, you, but I'm not going to be busy reconstructing my life. And people can smell hypocrisy a mile away. So we can't be hypocrites in our uh, adoption of the biblical view. You know, there's too many of them out there already. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com.
Matthew Grant asks, What do you make of the Levitical law to not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you believe Christ, in paraphrasing this Levitical ordinance doctrine, would be would extend this? And I can't read the rest of it and see if um, my technical director can get, get me the rest of your question. Yeah, this looks, looks like a question, uh, proceeds from Levitical, Leviticus 19, verses 17, 18, 19, that particular passage. Would extend this particular emphasis on the sons of your own people or kindred. Uh, that's an interesting point. Is At what point is someone not your neighbor it is, I think, at the core of that question. It really says you shall not hate your neighbor uh, as yours, um, but you sh uh, and because part of the problem is that folks would knowingly not rebuke somebody, um, knowing that that sin therefore would stay on that person's head. But the scripture is very different. It says if you don't rebuke them at least once, you don't have to nag them to death, but if you don't uh, warn your neighbor of the sin that is separating them from God and from the blessings of God and perhaps introducing them into a disaster, uh, it's necessary at that point, uh, a loving approach would be to warn them, to not leave them unwarned and therefore still propelling themselves into a pit. So I think the injunction here is ethical. It is not racial. It has nothing to do with racial or else the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan would make very little sense. Why is the Samaritan helping uh, the Jew who got stuck in the ditch when the, the Levite and the priest uh, went far around? It's because, uh, and Jesus used this example specifically uh, to show that it bridges all these boundaries because we're all made in the image of Adam. And anyone at any time uh, we all need the law of God. It was given for all. You know, it was given to be obeyed, and it wasn't given to be bro broken perpetually. And as Warfield paraphrases uh, Matthew 5, 18, uh, 17, 18, Jesus came not to violate, you know, to abrogate the law, but to get it kept. And part of that keeping is, of course, this passage, which is one of the two great commandments that uh, Jesus laid out, to love, your, uh, to love the Lord God with all your might, strength, and soul, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't have to quote the entire thing, but the important part about the entire thing is that the context indicates that one of the ways that you do love your neighbor as yourself is to warn them when they are in sin and not to maintain, not to zip it and say, I'm going to let that guy uh, go into the pit with his life, not warn him that he's in, at risk. Again, I want to make an important point. This is not about nagging someone to do the right thing. The scripture says that your obligation has been kept when you've warned them once. God only warns the same way. So now they sin against better knowledge. There's not a lot you can do about that. If, you, if they're a family member, you're obviously going to persist. You will be like the woman, the widow of Luke 18, 1 through 8. You're going to persist in uh, getting justice, if you will. But it was justice that she was pursuing. She, wasn't, uh, she was going to nag the guy the magistrate who didn't fear God nor man because he refused to do his job. He would not give justice, yet he was appointed to be a just judge in Israel. And he finally caved in and did the right thing. So that's a little bit different story, uh, but she persisted. And the lesson there is prayer, right? The parable was given to us to the end that we might always pray. And so that's the purpose of the parable. Um, are there any other Questions coming up. By the way, it's interesting uh, that particular thing about the sons of your own people or kindred, if you will. 
that the same law tells us that we are to be no respecter of persons, to be the same law for the you as there would be for the outsider. So the outsider living in your midst has to be under the same rule of Leviticus 19.18. So it would be illegitimate to try to take this thing and press it into only help those uh, of, um, that are related to you and be um, their neighbors. After all, Jesus says, you know, what does it mean if you are going to be friendly to your friends, you know? Do good to your friends. Everyone does that. You can go to your enemy, and that's the tough part. And why does uh, the scripture have us be good to our enemies? Why is it actually happened yesterday, for that matter? Not that it happened because we were dealing with enemies, but we saw, my wife and I saw, um, two goats out on the road that had escaped their pen in the properties down about a mile from our home as we're heading home. We pull over and try to deal with uh, getting them in and uh, had some help getting that back in, and she went back out to check for a hole and found they were back out again. So she ended up repairing the hole in the fence uh, and after restoring the animals. Now, in the scripture, it says, if you see your neighbor's ox wandering around, you're to take it back to the neighbor and hand the thing over back to the neighbor at that point. And what does this do? Well, it actually kind of reunites people who are at enmity because you've done a good thing. And even if they are not receiving it well, well, the heaping, you've heaped burning coals on their head because you've done a good deed for them even if they don't accept it. But more often than not, the intent is to build a bridge that had been burned. It rebuilds the bridge by doing good unto those who did you who you see as your enemy. And so uh, community is always being reestablished. Uh, it happened that we didn't have to, any en enemies there to reestablish, but it certainly strengthened the relationship that someone who's off uh, hundreds of miles away, we can go and fix their fence for them and put their animals back so they don't get killed on the road. So I actually saw a uh, real-life example of this. Okay, Matthew's question is kind of chunk. Where should Everett's regarding charity be focused? Okay, that's from the Chalcedon. Uh, I can't tell if that's the continuation of Matthew's second question or, or something different. It's pinned. I guess I'll have to answer this. I don't, I don't have the rest of Matthew's question visible to me. So I'll take a look at the, the Chalcedon. Where should Everett's regarding charity be focused? Uh, excellent question. I think if we focus on the poor tithe and understand it, uh, on this, if we uh, the poor tithe, we've spoken about it several times. It amounts to a ten percent of your increase uh, every third year, which is about three point three percent annually. And the uh, again, I'm going to recommend that book, Tithing and Dominion, by Powell and Rushdoony. And the passage concerning it shows that when you have, um, when the community gets together and puts this cash together, they find the folks that are poor, and they have the feast, and they give them the capital, the resources to lift them all at one shot out of poverty. And why I'm big on this and lecture on this is because uh, when Israel obeyed this law, they actually eradicated poverty in the entire nation. And this happened in the Maccabean era, according to the book of. Uh, uh, second book of Maccabees. I can find you the chapter and verse, but it accounts how many had hundreds of talents of gold and silver of excess had been located in the uh, temple uh, that would have been allocated for the poor tithe, indicating there was a surplus, meaning that they had already solved the problem at the time. And then they had, a, unfortunately, a degradation, a decline from this high point at the time that Jesus came in. So we had that poor widow throwing just the two mites. I discussed this more length in the very first Q&A session. Yes, thank you for the book. 
and I think Matthew says, uh, speak more about this. And I guess the this uh, was the second greatest commandment and its application. Uh, I'm not sure I have more to say on it other than uh, it's correct that the second half of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are how to go about loving your neighbor. I think it's not just an emotional love at all. That's it, uh, heart there. Rather, it's doing the law to them. That's when you protect and uh, preserve their life, their property, uh, their reputation, uh, their, their goods, things in this, uh, this order. Certainly, then we're in a place where then they are loved so far as the Bible is concerned. In other words, <clears throat> when Paul talks about love being the fulfilling of the law, there's two ways to take that. And some people say, if you just have a loving attitude, you've already fulfilled the law. And the other way to take it, which I believe is the correct way, <coughs> is by fulfilling the law, you've um, shown your love for them. Love const is constituted by the fulfilling of God's law toward individuals. If you are lawless toward them, then you are treating them unjustly, and you are treating them less than Jesus has required, and uh, you are defrauding them of all sorts of things. Their life, liberty, property, wives, etc., etc., reputation. Oh, I, okay, thank you for extending that. They spoke of the obligation to give a first warning. I'm interested in that if you'd like to speak about it. Uh, yes, it's, it turns out that uh, uh, the, the Bible only requires the first warning insofar as the sin not being on your head anymore, right? We have prophets, I think it might even have been Ezekiel, um, saying, if, if I do not warn you, then the sin is on, on my head, blood's on my head. In fact, this even is, I think, iterated in Leviticus. Let me just verify that real quick. If you don't want to have the blood on your head, you must warn them. But it doesn't say uh, anything more than a punctiliar warning is necessary, which is to say the one warning. At that point, they are on notice with God. They don't have to see. God doesn't have to say things twice for it to, to count. This is the problem with dispensationalism. If, Jesus, if God didn't say it twice, once in the Old Testament and once in the New, we're off the hook. We only have to be warned once. And that's, that's a problematic approach to things. Yeah, I think it's probably in the Ezekiel passage, so I'm going to pass on that but uh, yeah that would be the point if you want to go in, uh, if you um, are a Facebook friend of mine Matthew go ahead and, uh, and if not send a request and I can probably get you the exact verses that I think speak to this issue uh, and I say this because folks are more than willing to nag someone to death on a point and it uh, but in that point your obligation has already been met uh, in terms of they have been warned. In fact, it's interesting to me the way that uh, Abraham in the story of the rich man and Lazarus plays it out. Send someone back from the dead. You know, they have Moses and the prophets. It's adequate warning. They already have what they need because they, we know that they're taught that. And that's all that you need. There's this point in which sufficiency is asserted by Abraham to the rich young, you know, the rich ruler there, because he's a rich man, period, divas. Uh, who entertained Lazarus being on his porch <coughs> and having the dogs lick Lazarus's sores. So not a lot of love there on the part of the rich man.
Well, there's an interesting question. What do you think about mandatory local church membership? And it's being asked by someone that I thought was my friend. <laughs> okay, so here's one of the big hot potatoes. And the and what's being used, this is a shibboleth. The shibboleth is the question that if you pronounce the answer incorrectly, uh, you're going to have a, a sword from one side or the other. So this is a divisive question uh, in by intent. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things that have to be resolved prior to arriving at this question. In other words, this question is a compound question. It's a when did you stop beating your wife question, in effect, because it presupposes certain things first. Now, it's my position that if you resolve the things that are, are to be uh, underneath the question, that lurk underneath the, the question, and you don't get pulled into the trap, then it can be resolved in a, in a productive, constructive, future-oriented way that maximizes liberty. Uh, this is similar to the question, you know, do you, or should we pay tribute or not? And what does Jesus do? He looks at the underlying problem. Show me the coin. Oh, it's got, it's a denarius. Now that, it's got a, an idol's, you know, the superscription shows it belongs to somebody else. And it's an inflated currency to boot. So this coin should not be in your possession. According to the book, the books of the Lord Moses, it shouldn't even be in your purse. How'd you happen to have one in your possession, right? So he says, give it back. Caesar. So he basically says there's a fundamental problem about the tribute. He go digs underneath the surface of the, uh, the the question that was challenged, which was an entrapping question, to say there's a problem underneath it. We've got to solve the problem underneath it, and then that problem will actually go away by itself because uh, we'll have resolved the fundamental thing, of which this is merely a symptom. So this question is a symptom of a deeper lying problem and has to do with the nature of the church. Invis you know, the invisible and visible church to each other and the nature of church authority and uh, to what extent it's absolute and this is where the problems arise I will direct everyone here who's interested in rereading it if you haven't read it already or reading it for the first time if you haven't read it already uh, to the article Liberty from Abuse where I demonstrate that in a span of nine and a half months a victim of an abuse situation with a missionary went to over two dozen church organizations at 58 encounters in those nine and a half months of which 131 moral failures, major moral failures of these major Christian churches and parachurch ministries occurred and were inflicted on the victim even though the perpetrator admitted guilt. It's just astonishing. So we have this litany of injustice perpetrated by the churches in their authority as churches. And that's a scary thing. It, I believe this is undercutting their authority because the Messiah the, bride, the bridegroom is just in having salvation, as Zechariah 9 informs us, then who says the bride has the option of being unjust, that she's still a bride if she's something other than unspotted and impure in her conduct? And that's a problem. So we have that problem. We have the other issue, which is exposed in that article, in uh, that there's a general reluctance of pastors to even consider that perhaps they might be diatrophies in the mirror, looking at the you know, John third uh, epistle of John, the guy who liked to have the preeminence. Uh, that's a fundamental problem, which means that a lot of pastors don't like to preach about Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, parts of Zechariah 11, because they talk about bad shepherds, shepherds that use the uh, foolish implements that harm the sheep, things in this order. Why are these passages in there? Because it's the other church has got the problem. Just like it's the other public schools that are bad. It's the other churches that have the problem that need those verses and should read them because it applies to them. 
but there's this apparent blindness on our part about our particular local churches. And they all have human beings that are fallen in them. And uh, the thing that bothers me the most is that we are all in tune to the fact that, wow, the state is way out of kilter with what the Bible requires. And, but the church has been influencing the state for 20 centuries. So what makes us think that the ch this uh, church is pure simply because it has some titles to its name? This didn't get the Jews very far, saying, we have Abraham as our father. I think the modern version of that is, we're the bride of Christ. Really? Well, show justice. Show that you have the capacity to be what the bride of Christ is supposed to be, following the bride. Right? And, and we, we see a, a huge lack in that area. So I say there's some fundamental problems there. Uh, I preached the very first time we had an um, evening with Chalcedon in Dallas. I commented on that passage in Matthew 24, the opening verses. What do the disciples do when Jesus has just finished condemning uh, Jerusalem and the temple? <clears throat> you know what they did? Showed them all the rocks in the temples. Look at this. Look at this enormous edifice here. It's, a, it's huge. What are you talking about? This is, this, is, this is here to stay. This is big. This is where God's working. Jesus didn't buy any of that. It, it was irrelevant to Christ. All coming down because it's erected on a fraud, at least now, because it's now their house. It's not God's house. Jesus called it my house at age 12, right? Did you, did you not need to know I had needed to be in my father's house? He tells his mother Mary. But here he says, your house is left unto you desolate. Something has happened to the house of God in the intervening 18 years, right? 18 to 21 years. And we have to be mindful what to make us think different. So we have to understand the nature of the indivisible church, the visible church, and their relationships. And until we solve that problem first, uh, then answering that next one is simply going to get us into the heat and the, uh, the, the brush fires off to the side and be distractions from the one thing that we have to be reconstructing. And I do believe there needs to be reconstruction of the church because it doesn't make sense to me to think, well, the uh, state needs reconstruction, but the church is pretty close to perfect in how it's uh, developed, especially since out of the Reformation and the various creeds and things like this. Um, reconstruction must be a continual process as is, as a Reformation. And if it is biblical, no one should fear it. But if you're on the wrong side of the Bible on this, you will fear reconstruction of the church. It's that simple because it's going to be your ox, it's cord, if you have a commitment to a rice bowl that is premised on a false understanding of Scripture or a systematic approach to it that's going to get you in trouble. Uh, what do I think about the three tithes? Well, first answer is I support them. The 10% on the increase, the celebratory tithe and the poor tithe, should we still tithe? Uh, this actually was asked the last uh, two questions, so it seems to be a popular question. And uh, I can say yes, all of those tithes are still valid for today, and they will still bless people. It's God's way of dealing with uh, the poor uh, for the poor tithe. And it's my contention, as I said the last two uh, messages, that uh, in Mark 10, when the rich young ruler is uh, criticized by Christ, it's for violation of the poor tithe. That the particular word, apostoresis in the Greek, where Jesus says, thou shalt not defraud, is the, what he was guilty of. One of these you lack. Go and sell all that you have and give back to the poor. And this reflected a fourfold penalty, just like Zacchaeus paid her. The tax collector up in the tree was short. He paid the fourfold penalty for what he defrauded. But this rich ruler refused to do it. He walked away sad because he had to sell everything he had to pay and make restitution to the poor. So Jesus is enforcing the poor tithe there at Mark 10 from all accounts. And the fact that the man refused to do it tells us a lot about why that widow was walking just a few verses later on and has throws in the two mites, which has constituted in Scripture all that she had, her worldly goods. 
And Jesus says she threw in more than all the rest because she threw in all that she had. And she still tithed, even though she was a legitimate recipient of the poor tithe and didn't have it. I don't know why we would have an objection to the um, rejoicing tithe. That seems to be something we would get excited about. Hey, Christian vacations are required. Um, what a wonderful blessing that would be. So the rest of it has to do with the proper division of the main Levitical tithe, which, as we've noted before, the division is noted in Numbers 18 and in Nehemiah 10, 38. The tithe of the tithe goes to the priests, which is the institutional worship, and the rest goes to the Levites. The Levites were charged primarily with education and with health matters. Uh, these are the fundamental things that the Levites were charged to do. And so that's where the 90% of the tithe would actually go for that particular tithe. How that looks today uh, is an area, again, of reconstruction. We are so far removed from the biblical standards that now we have to kind of build back from the beginning and say, it's got our best minds on this, best hearts on this too, and those that are totally sold on our scripture, and be um, unremitting in our commitment to exegetically getting it right and applying it properly. You can have all the doctrine in the world that's right, but if you're not applying it, it's worthless, right? So uh, that's, that's an issue. You would change the world if you did all these things, and you also use the, because uh, you wouldn't have the public education system, because it's already covered under the, the tithe, which would be all privatized homeschooling or Christian schooling. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing, and uh, I've done a lot of lectures on this across the country and put out the slides, and I think I owe someone a slide who still is asking me, uh, J. Vincent Garza, I still owe you that, uh, and I'll, I'll do that. But yeah, they all, all still apply, and... Um, Okay, we have another, time goes so fast here. We have another 10 minutes or so, so ask any questions you have for this week's uh, session. Someone has a question about hospitals? Well, let me tell you about hospitals. I guess you can tell I have uh, another technical director here uh, on site. Uh, the first hospitals were actually set up by Christians in the Middle Ages. Hospitals and universities were a Christian invention. They were an example of dominion. Um, the monasteries, for all their faults, did certain things very, very right. And that's uh, what we can do. Yes, uh, Philip, uh, you're right. You can actually do away with welfare because you don't have any poor people to take care of. When I uh, contrast the biblical poor tithe to the welfare system, uh, apart from the fact that the, you actually solve poverty with the biblical system, the problem with the other welfare system is that they are meeting out subsistence level wages um, measly subs uh, on a weekly basis keeping someone dependent on it uh, there's no real exit strategy per se the reason it works in the biblical system is that they are in the government community ensures that someone's lifted all the way out of poverty in one fell swoop it's a tremendous uh, and it's done eye to eye it's a personal interaction whereas there's nothing more impersonal than the state institutionally giving you a check in the mail if you're lucky enough to get it. And I don't even think you're lucky to have it because now you're showing uh, the problem there is that when you think it's, you're entitled to it, you're not even grateful for it. Whereas when the community gets together for the poor tithe, the community is improved because there's a relationship between those who are uh, issuing the poor tithe and the one receiving it. And that is a community bond that grows. And I've said this before, most people don't realize that Dr. Reshtuni did a wonderful lecture series on uh, Christianity and community. Uh, it was videotaped, and we hope one day to get it out there. So yes, you can do away with welfare because there'd be no reason for it. You would do away with the public school system, there'd be no reason for it. Uh, all the hospitals would be privatized. We have a very different medical system, and 
they wouldn't uh, have some of the massive centralized controls and regulations. This regulatory nightmare that you can regulate yourself uh, into paradise is a disaster, and it marks most of um, status thinking. So people, people, it's like fish in water. Once you are born into a statist environment and have been inculcated from the public schools forward, and of course with the media, mainstream media, you can only see things through that particular um, set of glasses. And they color everything that you see and do. Therefore, we came full circle to the Roman position that a man without a state isn't even a man anymore. A stateless man, he's, he's a, a rogue, a renegade, a barbarian or something, but he is certainly not a man if he is not a citizen of a state. So <clears throat> uh, that means that all validation on all credentials, all value comes from the state. And if you open up the op opening chapter, I think it's even the forward or introduction of Bonson's book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, he has some quotations that are just fascinating uh, about the state and its relationship to the life of the people. And you see these three statements that are clearly tyrannical in their approach, you know, nothing outside the state, everything for the state. And you say, okay, that's a quote from Hitler. Here's a similar one, quote from Stalin. Then you read the next one, it says, just as tyrannical as the first two, but it's a quote from FDR, the President of the United States. And you realize all three are the same peas in the pod, which is power, power, power. As Dr. Moorcraft said back, I think, in the days when a Democrat was in power, if I'm not mistaken, what do the uh, Democrats want? They want to hold on to power. And what do the Republicans want? They want to seize power. But what does Zechariah tell us? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how the build of the kingdom of God is going to be raised up, and not by human means either. Uh, and I think this is why John Owen took attention, paid attention to that verse in Luke 11. The kingdom of God cometh not by observation. And he makes the statement, he says that the kingdom that cometh not by observation has become vile in our eyes because we are looking after worldly glory. We're looking after power. We respect power. We don't respect God, who's actually omnipotent, all-powerful. Pantocrator, as they say, the all-powerful God in the Greek. So um, that's our problem. That's a failure of character for us, that we are willing to uh, regard the kingdom that comes not with observation, the kingdom of God, which is in our midst and growing like a mustard seed slowly, leaven, slowly leavening everything, violent our eyes because we're gazing after worldly glory. And this gazing after worldly glory is the death of all Christian faith because now our faith is in the state. You can s still be on church on Sunday and go through all the motions, and they're as meaningless as they ever will be. It's a corpse, a white sepulchre. And Jesus rightly said of the religion of his time that it was dead. It looks like we are done for the day. I have no idea that it went so fast. It feels like we just started a few minutes ago. So, yes, we'll be on for next week. I look forward to seeing everyone Jules July 2nd. For those who are signed up for the Sovereignty Book of the Month Club, uh, I look forward to seeing you the next day. And then the, the 4th of July, where we celebrate something uh, that has yet to be determined whether it's a good or bad thing. Uh, that's up to us, isn't it? Uh, to put our, our country back on the right path uh, from the ground up, again, from the ground up. It's hard to dig uh, new foundations and excavate with a spoon, and that's the task that we begin with that's been given us. So I hope that you all join me with your spoons in the ditch and do what Isaiah 58, 12 says, you know, to restore the past to dwell in. That's the mission. They that shall be of thee shall build. They shall uh, restore all the paths, you know, build old waste places. 
and that's not fun to re to uh, restore foundations. Everyone wants to put the capstone up top, but foundation work that's the tough stuff. But homeschooling is foundation work. Bless you all too. Thanks for that, Gary, Matthew, and all the others. Philip, glad to have you here, and um, hopefully we get uh, a lot of views on this and folks find something of uh, edifying value in these uh, brief Q and A's. Appreciate it. Talk to you guys next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.